Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an awesome episode to share with you. I just had a really fun conversation with a very talented guy. His name's Mark Frauenfelder. Mark is a jack of many trades. Uh, he's the founder, editor in chief of Make Magazine, the founder of Boing Boing, one of the most viewed blogs in the world, and the editor in chief of CoolTools.org. He was the editor at Wired from 1993 to 1998, the founding editor at Wired.com, and the author of seven books. Uh, he has also appeared on the Colbert Report twice, the Martha Stewart Show, and has written for the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Popular Science, Business Week, The Hollywood Reporter, Wired, and many other national publications. Uh, I had a really fun time talking to Mark. Uh, he's a maker, and you know, I feel like it's something that... Uh, you know, working with your hands, fixing things. It's something that's sort of going out of style and something that I think people need to try more of and to uh, feel that satisfaction of fixing something or making something. And uh, Mark embodies really the philosophy of that. So I had a really great time talking to him and I know you're going to love this episode. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Mark Frauenfelder. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Well, thanks so much, Patrick. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I have been following your work for years now. You're all over the internet. You've, done, you've written so much. And uh, first off, I just want to thank you for all that content because I feel uh, that it really is a unique perspective that we need more of right now, more people making stuff, more people using their hands and sort of uh, on, you know, learning about that, that part that we, of our lives that we don't uh, really have as much access to anymore. So I appreciate all that you've done in that space. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. And yeah, I'm just such a huge fan of the, the do it yourself world online and how much of a difference it can make in people's lives. You know, just even like mundane things like I uh, had, a, I, Last week, a a uh, close a laundry like clothes dryer break, and I couldn't figure out what the deal was. You know, I, I would push the button and I would hear a click, and so just going on to YouTube, there's like troubleshooting guides. If you press the the button and you hear a click but nothing happens, here's what to do, and you kind of run down the list. And so um, it wasn't the 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 heat fuse. It wasn't the little door uh, safety switch. What it ended up being was the actual drum belt that spins the, the clothes drum. And so then, of course, there's like a great video online that shows you how to put a new belt onto your, your clothes dryer. And so I went onto Amazon, bought my, I think it was like $7.99 for a drum belt, came the next day. I installed it, only got one cut on a knuckle, and uh, 
it was done. And, and imagine, you know, like 10 years ago, really, you know, I, I would not have even known how to take apart the clothes wash. It would have been just like unscrewing random parts off of the, the clothes dryer until I like finally got the thing open. But, you know, troubleshooting it and everything, it would just have taken forever to do. And it would have ended up being, you know, cheaper to just hire an expert to come. But in this case, it was cheaper to do it myself and more rewarding. And I learned something about the clothes dryer. And the next time something goes wrong with it, I'm like that far ahead of the game. It's really cool. So yeah, the whole DIY world online is amazing. And I'm sure you've seen the you know, you've been online, I imagine, from the beginning. You you started what you started Make Magazine, what was it, in the late eighties? Well, I actually started a, a magazine called Boing Boing in the late eighties. And um I was an editor at Wired magazine. Um I started working there in nineteen ninety three. Um I uh put Boing Boing online, I think in ninety five. It's kind of like a webzine. This was before blogs. And so uh there, there were, you know, the, the internet was like a great source of, of information even back then, but it's just like, it, it's really flourished now. And, and Make Magazine actually started in, uh, I think the first issue came out in early 2004 or 2005. I can't remember now. I think it's probably to maybe January of 2005, I'm going to say. Yeah, it's, it's, amazing to see how much has come online in the past few years. You know, sometimes I find myself uh, like, man, I don't know if there's going to be a YouTube video on this. And then I search it and there's like thousands of results. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. For everything. Yeah. Everything you can think of. There's someone who has done it. And it's like such a great, like it, it, it makes you feel good about the generosity of people to do it. To, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like what's in it for them to like set up a camera and replace a, a cartridge on their, uh, their shower uh, faucet. You know, it's like, what are they getting out of that? It, it's like they're not getting money for it, but they're taking the time to do it to help other people out of the kindness of their heart. That's like such a, a cool gesture. I, I think it's, it's such a unique uh, time we're in now where we have access to that kind of information. And yet at the same time, you know, we're we're in a situation where I think a lot of people, if their dryer or their washing machine broke, they wouldn't even dare to even break out a screwdriver and, and try and figure out what was wrong with it. So it's, it's sort of like a double edged, double sided coin there. Where yeah, I think so. It's always kind of that way though. I think that um, there's always going to be people and I'm not, I don't have anything against it that would rather spend money for a solution rather than, come up you know with with figuring out how to fix it on their own and there's nothing wrong with that people are busy they have lives they have families they have jobs they have other interests and if it doesn't interest them to, to put a new belt on and they want to hire someone who's who's good at it more power to them i know i think that's fine but for some people it's it's a very re rewarding feeling and it gives you you know this sense of self-efficacy where you do something and it's like wow you know i can make like a a difference in the in the designed world around me I have like some control over it and having that sense of control is like intoxicating and you want more and more of it and pretty soon you realize you're like doing all sorts of stuff that you never would have dreamed of doing it but it's just because you've had these kind of small victories that that add up 
and that's like kind of been you know where where i'm at and and it's exciting you know it's just fun for me to try something and even if it it's a failure i learn something and then you do appreciate the expert who does come and fix what you screwed up even worse trying to repair uh, <laughs> it totally true i i'm curious like how that started for you because i uh in doing my research you know, deeper onto your background, I saw that there was a point where you weren't a maker and then you became a maker. And I think that transition is one that a lot of people, they, they have the drive somewhere inside them to have a better understanding of, you know, whether it's their appliances or their home or, or how these things work, but they don't, they're afraid to take that leap and to make those failures. How did, what, what was it like for you, you know, sort of crossing that bridge? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, um, you know, I, I've given that a lot of thought. And like, I, I have always like looked up to my, my father as someone who can like do everything. And he like did his own plumbing, his own wiring. He was an electrical engineer. He can make like really cool, like buckskin clothes and, and buttons out of like nickels and beautiful stained glass Tiffany lamps. Um, and, uh, you know, decks and laying bricks. And so he was like so good at all that stuff that I was almost in intimidated rather than encouraged because when I would try something, it didn't turn out well. And I was easily discouraged. And it's just like, you know, I'll oh, screw it. It didn't work. And I, I gave up. And um, it, it kind of my, my interest veered towards like art and media and writing and illustration and things like that, where it was less working with physical things and more like manipulating ideas and concepts, which was something that I really liked and, and I still like. And it wasn't until I started to kind of meet these people who I really admired as makers and got to know them and talk to them and learn from them that the, the difference between them and me, the most, the most critical difference was that they weren't afraid of making mistakes and they didn't get discouraged from mistakes. And they like looked at mistakes as teachers, as these inevitable things that would happen along their path to making something. And it wasn't that they ever tried to make a mistake. They always tried their best and tried to avoid mistakes, but they knew with certainty that mistakes were going to come and that those were opportunities to like learn maybe try something else, uh, get creative. And so once I kind of like realized that and that light bulb flipped on in my head, that changed everything. And I just kind of embraced this, this uh, mistake mindset. And now um, I don't mind making a mistake. And I, I make more mistakes than ever, and I'm, I'm happier about it than I ever was. Do you remember the first project that you tried to take on? that you were nervous about? Um, let's see, uh, that, I was, that I was nervous about, yeah, it was, um, I had a, a Mac, an, a, an iMac, and I wanted to uh, upgrade the hard drive and put a solid state drive into it. So when I was taking it apart, I tore a cable off of a board. And so when I looked at it, it was like really 
like little tiny pads that I would have to solder. And so I thought that it would be, a, you know, it was like a, a major job, but I did a lot of research, watched videos, people doing it, ordered a, a, a kind of soldering uh, system where you could just apply like a heat gun and have all these solder pads melt at once and the solder paste and everything. And um, as I was working on it, I realized that I ended up like melting off a bunch of the actual pads on the board, rendering it completely useless and destroying my entire iMac as a result of it. And so it was like an expensive mistake. Um, But, you know, it was something that, that didn't really bum me out that much. You know, fortunately I was able to buy another one. I know a lot of people can't just simply go buy another Macintosh, but I was able to do that. But uh, that was probably like the biggest, most expensive screw up I've had so far. Well, at least you were willing to, uh, you know, get your hands dirty and get in there and yeah. make an attempt at it. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's just interesting to kind of see that process and to, to realize that some people can actually do it at home. It's crazy. You really need like, an, you almost need a microscope to do it. Um, you need like, uh, you know, you need magnification just to see what you're soldering. And you could, it's an, it would be impossible to use like a soldering iron to do it, even a really fine tipped one. But there are actually people who can do it successfully, which is like just uh, like mind boggling to me that someone can do that. Yeah, I love that aspect of sort of the DUI, DIY space as well. <laughs> DUI, no, um, <laughs> is the, the level of talent that some people have that with working with these things and, and the transformations they're able to make on, on, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, like I would never take apart my computer and try and start messing with the soldering, anything, forget about it. Never mind. Try to like, you know, improve an old piece of furniture, improve, uh, you know, like an antique item, anything like that. The level of talent people have is, is amazing. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, it helps to have great instructions. Like, just a, a few weeks ago, my uh, wife's computer, she's, she has a, a MacBook, the uh, touch, the little, uh, you know, the, the touchpad stopped working. And so there's this great site called iFixit, where they have these just beautiful tutorials in PDF form with nice clear pictures that you can click on that blow up really big. And they also sell the different screwdrivers you need with the different kinds of bits on them. There's like, you know, uh, Apple does not want you to open their equipment. So you can't use like regular Phillips head or slot screwdrivers or um, even Torx. They have these kind of like tri-tip screwdrivers. But anyway, so I followed the instruction, was, was able to open it and then realized, you know, found the problem, which was that there was uh, a little bit of like build up, some schmutz underneath the, uh, the, pad so that when you touched it, it couldn't uh, depress fully. And so that was like, you know, a successful fix for me. And, uh, you know, again, the, the generosity of people to take time to, to make these kinds of tutorials. And the other thing that like lately I've been really enjoying are these restoration videos. Have you seen these where people like buy like an old rusty 
tool, like an old vice or a rusty old flashlight or something, and restore it to a condition that's actually better than when it was first manufactured, you know, like in the 50s or, or even earlier. Yeah, yeah. I, I love those. It's, it's, it's amazing to see, like, you know, you can only imagine what those products are like new and the quality of those products when they were originally produced. It's so, it's, it's just crazy that you can restore that stuff like virtually back from the dead. Yeah. And, you know, you use like these caustic kind of corrosive chemicals to remove the, the rust and the old paint and everything. And then, um, a lot of these guys have sandblasters so they they can like really like polish the metal parts down and it just ends up looking so nice. It's like extremely satisfying to, to watch the videos. And I can't imagine how, how satisfying it is to actually restore something like that. It, it seems like satisfaction is really the, the driving force of that community because like, like you mentioned earlier, like, yeah, you could just pay, you could buy a new one, you could pay a, a professional to fix your stuff, but it's the satisfaction that you get from doing it yourself. When, when did yeah. you discover that, that satisfaction? Was it, is that something that you've sort of felt in, you know, like electronics and robotics at an early age, or is that something that you cultivated over time? Like where, where did you sort of learn to hone in on that? Yeah. Um, I think um, it was like when I was doing Boing Boing as a print zine, and I would, you know, it was like in the days of using like rubber cement and exacto knives and cutting up uh, stuff and pasting it onto paper and then sending it to a printer and having, getting, getting that box of, of zines back that were finished. It was like a really fun feeling like there it is, you know, and had that nice printer's ink smell to it. That was like a very rewarding thing. And, you know, similar to, to making something and, and when you're successfully, when, when you're successful at, at making something, it's great. Like making a cigar box guitar, stringing it up and realizing that you actually can make decent sounding music on it. That's like such a great feeling. Uh, yeah, I, I love the, the projects you've done making your own instruments there. It's, uh, it's just such a cool thing to see, you know, taking a bunch of sort of, you know, low value materials combined together, creating a product that, that is so much more than the materials themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and finding things that you would otherwise throw away. Um, and then you end up with something that, that you actually want to keep around. It does kind of like the, the restoration videos too. It's just like most people would take, take, take that thing and throw it in the trash. So here's someone, they have to, they take it and by, spending some of their their time and expertise they end up with something that is just beautiful and it's got a story attached to it then too which makes it much more valuable than something you would just buy in a store i, I guess that's one of the cool things too is about kind of like having a handmade environment is that everything you make has a story and when you look at it um you have that connection to it which is really nice like Absolutely. i have these these wooden spoons that I, I, I don't know, they're like 10 years old that I, that I carved. And my family, we use them every single day. And, and every time I use them, I think about, you know, the fact that it's something that I made, which, uh, you know, and they aren't, they aren't great spoons. They get the job done, but 
you know, they've lasted for 10 years and it's just like a nice thing to have that kind of thing around you. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's something that is really missing from our, sorry, I guess you call it our current human experience that, you know, our ancestors before mass manufacturing would have to craft tools and craft their, you know, all, uh, all sorts of items around their home that we just did. We don't have that anymore. And it's sort of a missing art that I think could be a lot, very fulfilling for people. Yeah, definitely. I, and, um, I think part of it is that, uh, you know, in decades past, people were, were kind of good at having, like, being handy as a matter of necessity, like financial necessity. Um, a lot of, like, things like fans and other home appliances had panels that were meant for the user to open. They didn't have those labels that said, you know, warranty void if, Open, yeah. um, and they had like the you know the the parts that would 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 eventually burn out like you know brushes and motors and things like that uh, or tubes and TVs those were things that they expected you to maintain and like a, a color TV in the fifties like a thirteen inch or fifteen inch color TV cost in in like today's money about ten thousand dollars and so if that TV broke you really like you know you're not going to, to throw it away you're going to um take the tubes out of it and take them to the shop most drugstores had these machines where you could plug tubes into and a little meter would tell you if you needed to buy a new tube for it or not and then you would buy the tubes take them home plug it into your tv and start watching florence welk again um <laughs> and today you know a tv like a 20 inch color tv you could get at target or amazon a couple hundred dollars and so when that tv breaks even even if you did want to fix it it would be like really hard because the components are all surface mounted components you know there's no tubes to unplug there's nothing to unplug a lot of the a lot of the uh, parts are like glued together so you can't even unscrew them if you took it to a repair shop the person there is going to say you know just diagnosing a problem is going to cost more than than buying a new tv so that stuff ends up on the trash heap. And so people today, you know, it's, it's much easier to just deal with problems by throwing a little bit of money at it. And so they've missed out on that joy you get from having that sense of control of, of the stuff in your life. And so that's why I think a lot of people do, uh, you know, restore things, even though it would be a lot cheaper to buy a pair of tin snips brand new tin snips rather than like spending three days restoring it. That sense of reward is so great that it's worth the time you spend to do it. For some yeah, people. Anyway. I, I can imagine for most people, you know, I think for the people that maybe don't get that sense of reward, maybe they, they haven't really tapped into, uh, you know, how satisfying that can be to, cause like you mentioned with the washing machine, it's, it's more than just understanding, or the dryer. It's more than just understanding and having the satisfaction of like making that one fix, but now you know all about it. Now you have a deeper yeah. understanding of what, what you're, and then the gratitude that you get when you dry your clothes using that machine that you know all about and how it works, it, it, it sort of expands and is more fulfilling over time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, that kind of understanding of the world is great because you know, so much in your life is like 
you don't understand, you know, the economy, politics, um, uh, the way, you know, a lot of things work in the world are like beyond your comprehension or control. And so it's nice to at least have a little bit of control over something in your life. And, and this is one way to gain it, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, one thing that uh, I heard on a podcast a couple of years ago, it was, it was Kevin Kelly on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Mm-hmm. And he talked about building your own house and how that can, you know, it's something that everybody should do at some point. That's really stuck with me um, for that same reason. It's something, you know, knowing, being able to have control over that instead of having like some sort of, you know, cookie cutter McMansion or something like that, like being able to build something the way that fits you the best and also is going to give you satisfaction over time with it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and, uh, Kevin's a, an old friend of mine and we, we do the cool tools website together. And so, yeah, it's great. Kevin was one of the early, um, editors at the whole earth catalog, which was something Stuart brand launched in the late sixties. And it was kind of like this catalog of tools and books and resources for the uh, kind of the back to land, back to the land movement. And so that was like hugely influential to, to me and everyone at make magazine. And I think still a lot of people, Steve jobs was really into it. Um, they kind of pointed the way towards um, self-sufficient self-sufficiency. Um, and speaking of, of uh, building your own house, there's a book I, I recommend that Michael Pollan wrote called a place of my own. And uh, it's really interesting. He wanted to build like a, a small house on his property where he could write. And I think um, like a guest house too. And it's just really interesting about how he designed it and then built it. And there was this one critical moment where they, he was putting the, together the frame with someone else. And somehow with one of the major like structural uh, pieces of lumber, they didn't get it completely square at a 90 degree angle. It was off like maybe by one or two degrees. And the, the repercussions of that were like immense. Everything after at that point then required, couldn't be like done. Uh, you know, it, it required all, tons and tons of extra work. You couldn't cut anything square. The flooring had to have angles cut into it. The roofs had to have angles cut into it. Um, and that like that weird quirk, like kind of plagued him throughout the, 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 the book. And, uh, it became like, it, it's something that he still has like his love hate, uh, feeling about and, uh, really interesting, interesting book though. Oh, I'd love to read that. I love Michael Paul and I, I've only read his most recent book and I didn't even know about that one. So thank you for recommending that. I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah. And I haven't read his new one, that, how to change your mind. Yeah. Psychedelics. Yeah, I haven't read that. Is that did you enjoy it? I loved it. I think uh I think Michael Pollan is really something else. You know, the way he really wow. he gets his hands dirty, you know. You 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 know read his stuff, he's not gonna be shouting from the sidelines. Yeah. Yeah. I read a, a few books by him and then that really great article he wrote in I can't remember, it might have been the New Yorker, like in the early nineties, about um he wanted to like grow like poppies to make poppy tea um, and just the legal aspects of that. 
it's it's like at that time it was little known, but just like a regular poppy seed, you could like take a poppy seed, poppy seeds that you put on a bagel and grow them, and it would grow like opium pop poppies. Wow, the law is like really strange. It's like if you don't realize that poppies can be used to make opium or morphine, then you're okay. But if you grow them with the knowledge that that you can do that, then you can can be, uh, you know, arrested for like possession of a controlled substance. <laughs> and so it was like he, him exploring that kind of weird uh, dilemma. That's super interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting gray area there. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious in your own life, you know, I, like I mentioned to you before we started here, uh, you know, I was looking at what you're talking about with urban homesteading. Have you practiced that recently? Um, I, I've scaled back on it a little bit just because the, the, uh, area that we live in now it has so many critters to contend with that it's much harder. We used to live in Tarzana, which is like this kind of, you know, Tarzana as much and we, we were in this area called Melody Acres, which is actually zoned for farm animals. And we didn't have any coyotes or other predators or anything. And we had a lot of flat ground. So we had a garden. Um, we had uh, a lot of chickens. And then we moved to the hills of Studio City. And I brought the chickens with me. And um, right away, they just started getting picked off one by one. A bobcat took one. Coyotes took another one. I think a raccoon got another one um, and they just got picked off one by one. And uh, I've had uh, limited, you know, success with gardening. I have some of those earth boxes and right now I have like some kale and beets and onions um, and beans growing in those. And then a, a sprouter box right now um, with some watermelon seeds and uh, a few other plant some catnip I'm growing for our cats and so that uh but we don't have the chickens anymore I did have some bees here but they absconded from the hive so that's a something I want to do is get some more uh bees up here but so so that's that's about the extent of it not I haven't gotten into it that deeply but it's something that uh you know I kind of keep my my toes wet I get you. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The uh, the urban predators must must be adapting. You know, they're probably looking out for you know people like you with the chicken coops. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the coyotes like uh, when when the coyote, I actually like caught the coyote jumping over the fence with the chicken in his mouth, and I scared the coyote, so he dropped the chicken, and I was like had to take it to the vet, and um, they sewed it up, and I was having to like squirt antibiotics down his throat with a syringe twice a day. Um, but then like after that, like the coyotes would come back with their buddies. Like they have a way to communicate to each other. Like, Hey, there's some tasty snacks over here. But uh, it's interesting. The, the part of like, we're, we're really like kind of in between uh, the Valley and West Hollywood here in the Hills. But the, the amount of wildlife is in, is crazy. There, we have deer in our backyard sometimes. Um, I've been looking every day in, in our backyard. There are like four or five beautiful horned owls, three juveniles, and then one or two adults. And man, they're so cool looking. And then there's a golden eagle in the area, um, you know, and of course, tons of coyotes all over the place. That's like 
LA, I don't think any part of LA doesn't have coyotes. I don't think any part of the world doesn't have coyotes at this point. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's really interesting to me, like how much uh, wildlife is around, even though it's such an urban, you know, blob on the map, you know, it's like endless sprawl, yet the animals, you know, they don't care. They're, they're still here. Yeah. And Bob, I've seen bobcats here. Um, Lots of, lots of surprising creatures. I, I'm curious to, to know, uh, I, I was reviewing, you know, your trip to, you know, when you moved to an island in the South Pacific, and I could imagine there was a lot more wildlife there. What, 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 uh, what motivated you to, to make, you know, that's like sort of going all out on the, <laughs> I'm going to live off the land and, yeah. you know, like, like that, that's a, that's a big break. Like what motivated that? This was in 2003, and it had been like a tough couple of years. Um, my wife and I had, were, were like technology journalists. We were doing a lot of, like we had a lot of good contracts with like Wired Magazine and another one called The Industry Standard. And, you know, in, in 2000 or so, um, there were some really great, uh, like just the, the word rate that they were paying writers was like incredible. The, the the magazine industry was especially technology magazine industry was doing great and so we were like really it was e- it was you know not easy money but it was like the more you could write the more you could make and it was like just a great time and then everything crashed after the first dot-com crash and it kind of limped along and by 2003 we're like wow we're like you know this is hard to like even find work at all so we ended up, you know, we thought, what can we do? We wanted just kind of a, a, a big change. And so we sold our, our house and used some of that money to move to this little island in the South Pacific called Rarotonga, which is, um, you know, like pretty remote. I think it's like the closest country uh, that's of any size is New Zealand. And it's about a three and a half hour flight away and this is like a tiny island it's just like no bigger than five miles in diameter but it's really a gorgeous island it's it's so so beautiful with these big jagged rocks rising out of these really green lush rainforests and so we ended up moving there and uh we rented a little house that was right on the water that belonged to the daughter of this guy named Robert Dean Frisbee, who was kind of a famous uh, writer uh, about uh, the South Pacific. He wrote about like his adventures there and uh, what it was like to live there in the early 1900s, I think. Um, Wow. Yeah, he wrote some really cool books and, you know, like about like spending like on one, he was on one island there in, in the Cook Islands and, a hurricane was coming and it was so bad. He like ended up like tying himself and his children to um, trees, like the, the strongest trees. They're like banyan trees to keep them from being like blown off the island. And wow. like the whole island was devastated, but everyone lived just because he had like lashed everyone up. Like the, the housing they made had been torn away. But anyway, so we were in this house that was Robert Dean Frisbee's daughter's house. And that was really cool and um i loved 
our one of our kids was like two and a half months old at the, when we went there. And so I would just put her like in a little baby carrier, like one of those that you wear on your body and just like go hike in the, the hills and just like walk around for like three hours a day, just walking through the jungle. And uh, it's something that I'll never forget. It was, it was really a great experience. And then my other daughter was about five years old and uh, she just loved the, you know, idea that we could just go into the jungle and, and pick fruit that we would want to eat because they just had, you know, bananas and mangoes and papayas just growing all over the place. And you could just like grab the stuff or a lot of people would just like put their produce in, in boxes in their front yard and you could just take whatever you wanted and, and put some money in the little box and people would, would catch fish and you could buy fish from, from just like your neighbors, you know, would like have, have this great fish. And then there were coconut trees all over the place. So we learned how to become really creative with coconuts. And I got really good at opening coconuts and making coconut cream and coconut milk and coconut pancakes. And uh, so that was all good. I mean, the, the, you know, the bad part was that our immune systems weren't um, accustomed to living in that kind of humid climate. And so everyone ended up getting pneumonia, including my, my two and a half month old daughter. And the medical care wasn't really that great on the island. And so we had to have uh, medic medicines shipped in from New Zealand for her. We were like pretty nervous about it for a while. And we end, ended up leaving. We wanted to stay at least a year, but after four months we left. Um, and the, the, the trigger was that there was this like really bad flu that had hit the island. And we were just like really like done with being sick so much. And we, I just thought, you know, if we get hit by this flu that has like 20% of the island bedridden, it could really hurt us because we're already like suffering from chronic bronchitis that we can't seem to shake. So we took a plane to New Zealand and it was so interesting how quickly everything, like all these tropical maladies just like dried up. We went to a doctor and we got like antibiotic injections and everything. <clears throat> it was, that, that was another interesting thing was going to this doctor in New Zealand, just as tourists and getting all this medicine and care. And the bill was like $20 for <laughs> the entire family. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. And, and then, yeah, so, yeah, it was amazing. So then we spent, we stayed another couple of months, I think in New Zealand, um, but it was the rainy season. And, and so then we were just like, ah, oh, we're done. And we, we ended up coming back to LA. But uh, that was like in 2003. And it's, you know, I re remember those, those few months more than, than the, the years that followed because it was so different and exciting. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Like, that's just such an amazing uh, experience to, to take yourself out of, you know, our modern American civilization, you know, and to go live like that. It's, it's, it's beyond going to a different location. It's like going back in time into a different, a whole different era of and a way of living. It, it's such a unique experience. I can imagine that, that it would sort of stick in your mind a lot more. Yeah, it is. And just, it's such a different way of life there. You know, people are 
not as as goal oriented there and and also not as like not concerned with deadlines or anything like that and so once you get used to that idea that things will just happen on their own time you know or island time as they like to say then you you know start to feel that same way yourself and it's like just like all right whatever and uh you just you just go on and uh it was it was great were you able to maintain that that uh that mindset when you came back to the united states i think for a while and i still kind of think that um i can like draw on that sometimes when i'm stressed out i i it's it's like a, a pleasant place for my mind to go to and and realize that you can kind of have that mindset where, wherever you are and make use of it. I, yeah, I can imagine. Kind of more accepting. Yeah. You know, and just the, you know, the, the, the thing of just understanding that there are certain things you can control and there are certain things that are out of your control and being able to you know, recognize what things you can control and what you can't and that you can't, um, you, you really have little control over what other people want or do, then, then that, that's a helpful and, and healthy kind of mindset. I think that's really interesting how that relates to, you know, what we're talking about with making and DIY things as well. It's, it's having control over what you could have control over and, and, you know, and then the other side of the mindset is sort of ditching this stuff that you can't. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's a, a helpful attitude to have, and it makes you worry less too. I think when you when you realize that there are certain things that are out of your control and that it just you're wasting energy worrying about it. Absolutely. Well, switching gears a little bit here, I'm I'm curious now, like with you, you've. I imagine you've been watching te- like, you know, technology as it grows and expands and uh, so many new possibilities are, are, you know, confronting us right now. And before we started this conversation, you mentioned how one of the things that's exciting you is, is sort of how easy it is to, to prototype new technology. And I wanted to ask is, you know, have you, have you experimented with like 3d printers and, and that sort of thing that, that sort of make any sort of, idea you have you can just sort of print it on the spot if you had any uh experimentation with that yeah it's there's like the the tools that are available now are like incredible for people you don't need to be an industrial designer you don't need to be an electrical engineer you don't need to be a software engineer to make like really cool sophisticated things and it's it's things like 3d printers um, laser cutters, um, and I have a laser cutter and a 3D printer, and I use them both a lot. Um, and then things like Arduino and Raspberry Pi, and those are basically, they're like little circuit boards the size of credit cards. Um, and they're just, com- they're, they're computers. They, they are computers the size of a credit card, and they cost like 30 bucks or less. I mean, you can get like, smaller models for like five dollars and you can plug them into a keyboard you can plug them into a monitor and they have 
connections on them that uh, let you kind of add interactivity to projects. And so like with an Arduino, you have this, this set of, of pins, like little connections, and you can hook them up to like a push button or a temperature sensor um, or uh, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, like a microphone, uh, anything that can like measure a change in the environment, some kind of a sensor like that, you can attach to it. And then it has pins or connectors for output. So you could have like a bell, a, a light bulb, um, a speaker, a connection to the internet. And so you have this kind of input and then the Arduino has a computer on it that processes that input signal. And then you have the output, it does something. And it's very much kind of like a, a living system where you know living things input information, they input energy, uh, things from the environment, they process it, you, know, you think about it, you make decisions, and then you do something, you have an action. And so they're like these little living things. And so like kind of the classic example of an Arduino is you could take an Arduino and attach a humidity sensor to it and stick that into the humidity sensors like a little probe and you could put it into a house plant and if the humidity level of the dirt if, if, if the plant starts to dry up then the output would be that the arduino which has a most of them now have wi-fi um would would tweet it had wouldn't you could set up a, the, the arduino to have its own twitter account and it would tweet to the world i need water please water me and so like those are the kinds of things you can do and it's like that's something really to, to do a project like that would take you like you know 10 minutes um the the code base out there for arduino is huge if you just type in anything you want there's someone who has written software that's very close to what you need to make that happen and so there's like so many things out there and then raspberry pis are basically like they're they're linux computers they're not even basically like they they are linux computers and people have um done amazing things with them and one of them which I'm, I've been getting into lately is they've created emulators for all the old video consoles, like handhelds and uh, things like uh, SNES and um, and Sega and place early PlayStation. And so you can play all of those games, and you people have made like things that look like Game Boys that have a Raspberry Pi in them, and they have like little screens, and but they're loaded with like. 20,000, I'm not kidding, like 20,000 games from, from the 80s and 90s on them. Or That's you can, you know, amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. And so I, I've made this thing that's like out of, with a laser cutter and a 10-inch screen and arcade joysticks. And I have like this box that I have that's loaded with old arcade games like Galaga and um, Frogger and all the old video games, Space Invaders, all the old video games that I used to love to play as a kid. And I have this thing and, um, you know, it's so easy. It, I'm, it's not, not super easy, but, you know, it's like I was able to do it. And I, anyone can do it if they, if they have the interest in doing it. It's really fun. And even if you don't, like, own a 3D printer or a laser cutter at home, a lot of libraries now have maker spaces there and most towns have maker spaces where you can go and use that stuff. I did not know that. I had no idea that, that, that you could access that kind of stuff at a library. Yeah. Most public library, a lot of them do. Um, and so, yeah, I would recommend 
uh, doing that. And I think you can also go to a place called hackerspaces.org. Um, I haven't checked that in a while, but that is a place where you can like um, find out about uh, these, these kind of community spaces where they have all the, the tools and sometimes training um, to, to make this kind of stuff. I love that. I think that's such an awesome way to, to use new technology but to bring back the, you know, the fulfillment of, of making stuff and, and having the, the tools at your disposal to do that, even with complex technology like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and integrate that stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, really fun. And so, yeah, all, the, all these prototyping tools are out there and the, you know, YouTube is a place to learn about a lot of this stuff. Uh, there's another place that's called um, Skillshare that I really like a lot. It costs $10 a month and you get unlimited access to, to uh, learn how to do all sorts of different things. And um, I signed up for it and I learned how to make uh, animated explainer videos using Adobe After Effects. There's like these great teachers that show you how to do After Effects. And that's how I, I made a video. Um, I worked for this organization called Institute for the Future and I made a, a video that explains how blockchain works and it was the first animated video I ever made and it has now over two million views on on YouTube wow and, and you you have your own um, course on there right I do yeah I, I have one on actually teaching people Arduino and then another one about how to kind of like uh, think like a maker and I it's been a couple of years since I did it but I think the project that I did for that one was um how to make a, a peanut butter mixer you know like that natural peanut butter that yeah is, you know it's really hard to stir and this thing will like mix it for you automatically That's so you pretty... have to like deal with stirring it out in the morning I love it. I love it. You're always, you know, one thing I appreciate is with all the content that you publish, you're always on the sort of cutting edge, knowing these, uh, you know, fun ways to use these, you know, what, whatever it is, new tools or, uh, technologies available. Uh, where do, do you share this stuff in a newsletter? Do you, do you blast it out to um, everyone frequently? How does uh, Let's see. I, I sometimes uh, will write about it in a newsletter. There's, there's one that I do called Recommendo. Um, it's R-E-C-O-M-E-N-D-O.org. And it's a, a weekly newsletter that I do with Kevin Kelly and Claudia Dawson. And we recommend um, six like things every week. And it could be like a kind of a, a, a television show that a lot of people might not know about or a travel tip or a, a cool um, tool that we discovered. And so that, that's one place that we do it. And then sometimes just on Boing Boing, my blog, I'll write about the projects that I'm working on. Um, I think those are probably the two main places. And, then, and then, then also the website that I do with Kevin called Cool Tools. We also, um, you know, take a look at some of these maker tools. I got to ask, how long did it take you and Kevin Kelly to produce the book cool tools because I have to say I've never seen any book like it in my life. Oh, wow. Well, well, thanks so much. Um, that took, uh, probably, I mean, the, the content was something that's been collected over like the last 15 years, just from the website. 
all the reviews that have gone on there for the different tools. And it was modeled very much after the whole earth catalog. So it was a matter of laying it out and designing it. And so um, Kevin, you know, took the, took the lead with that. And a lot of what he did was um, use sources like uh, places like Upwork and, and like kind of gig economy um, freelance places online to batch process a lot of the work that went into producing the book. <clears throat> like one thing was to rem like for, for photos of a lot of the, the tools and stuff, they had backgrounds that were like confusing and, and you, you want these tools to stand out and see what you're looking at. And so he found someone on, on Upwork who could just take all those photos and quickly remove the backgrounds to all of them. And so he got that, he had people proofread, and stuff like that. So all in all, you know, it's probably like the, the actual production phase of the book was about a year or so. And then um, he found a printer in China to do it and a, a book distributor. So it was, you know, it, it, it's in itself, it was a big do it yourself project. Um, but uh, it's, uh, I, I love looking at that book. I love how it's it's like an application of the I, I would call it a philosophy that you know you you live by you know and you apply that in in the products and in the you know information that you distribute because that book is really something like I ordered it expecting you know your standard book and it comes I get comes in the mail in this huge box it's like two feet tall it's it's you know all the it's it's just huge and filled with amazing information you can never. You could just look at it all day. Oh, that's cool. Thanks. Yes, it's very big, really colorful. Every like page is just loaded with tons of different um, tools and books and stuff. And and um, even if you don't like intend to buy some of the tools, just kind of knowing that those tools exist is like inspirational and it gets you thinking. And, uh, you know, it, it, it can like kickstart your lateral thinking and it can be like a source of creativity just looking through the book, I think. Absolutely. It's, it, you flip through the pages, you can just open up to any random page and just understanding that there are tools out there for all these specific needs just will naturally broaden your horizon to thinking about how many different things there are to do. Yeah. yeah. It's cool stuff. I, I'm, uh, one other thing that we mentioned bef before we sort of got started here was, was one of the things you're excited about it is how is the effectiveness of newsletters? I want to learn more about that. Oh yeah. I, I am, have become a big fan of newsletters as a consumer of them and as a, a publisher of newsletters. And the reason is because I, I'm like not, I, I no longer trust platforms like Google or Facebook or Twitter because they're constantly changing their algorithm. They own your audience. They can throttle your traffic at any time. Um, they can cut your connection. They can deplatform you. You are at their mercy completely. And it's like a bad, it's a bad way to, um, try to communicate with people because you, again, you know, again, not having control. And so um, 
having a newsletter, you own that list of people who've subscribed. You have all their emails. They can be saved to a spreadsheet. So you can always get in touch with them. There's no one who can stop you from communicating with those people. And, and the people who do subscribe, there's like a direct connection with them. And it feels to me a lot like the days of the zines when I was into like publishing zines in the late 80s and early 90s, where there are these kind of highly personal, sometimes a little quirky, uh, passionate, obsessive uh, uh, dispatches from people who are, are, you know, compiling, curating, thinking about subjects that, that you're interested in. And it's like such a great way to receive information. And so that's why, you know, we have uh, Recommendo. And then there's another one that I started um, a, a few months ago called Book Freak. And it's just, each issue is just three short pieces of advice that I found in books. So, you know, there's one about uh, how to be more persuasive, uh, one about how not to worry so much, um, different topics like that, uh, how to uh, be more comfortable public speaking. And so, um, you know, for, for people who enjoy those kinds of, that, that kind of advice tidbits, like Book Freak is like a, a, a good thing for them to get in the mail every week. And so I, I am a big fan of like, you know, I hardly endorse people going out and finding newsletters that meet, match their interests and subscribing to them. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. You just go to the bottom of the newsletter and press unsubscribe and you'll never see it again. So there's no uh, cost involved. It's, it's free, which is great. I, I love that. I, I think that's a great idea. Uh, you definitely got me thinking about it. I, I think it, you're, you're totally right in the, with social media today, you know, the risk of being deplatformed or just losing your audience. Uh, I think that's sort of getting more and more risky every day. And uh, yeah. And, and I, I know from the newsletters that I subscribe to it, it's always, you know, exactly the kind of stuff that I want. Well, what are some of the ones that you subscribe to? What are some of your favorites? Well, let me see here. Um, let me just take a quick peek at sure, my sure. mailing list. Um, let's see. Will, I, I subscribe to uh, Tim Ferriss has one called Five Bullet Friday, which I think is really good. And, and it's basically five things that he is uh, interested in. So he's like, he talks about like in the latest issue, he's talking about a book he's reading, which is Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. Um, let's see, an app that he's enjoying, which is a, a vocal, uh, let's see, it's, it's a, an app that helps him with his uh, improving the quality of his voice. So, and then a quote that he likes. I, I really like Tim's Five, Five Bullet Friday. Um, there's another one that I really like called Futurism that has... Uh, kind of signals from the future um, or, or, or signals that point to, to what could happen in the future. So let's see, uh, uh, see pics of Martian clouds snap from the planet's surface. Dark energy could be hiding in the cosmic void between galaxies. If that kind of thing interests you, I recommend that one. Um, let's see. Uh, 
Oh, there's, and here's one that I really like. It's highly personal uh, called the Ann Friedman Weekly. I don't even know what Ann Friedman does. She might be a writer or something, but it's basically just the interesting things that she has been reading lately, interesting magazines she's found, interesting shows she's watching, uh, different kinds of apps she uses. So yeah, I, I'm really big on like newsletters about things that people recommend. Um, let's see, what else do I like? Uh, I just subscribed to Futurism. You, you got my attention. Oh, good. That's good. Um, let's see. Oh, and then uh, here's another one that I really like is by Rob Walker, who um, is a writer and a columnist for uh, the New York Times. He has a new book out that's called The Art of Noticing. And it's uh, about ways to um, be more observant. As, uh, and, and, the, and when you're more observant, he feels, you know, you'll be more creative and, and find inspiration and um, appreciate just the everyday. And so he has a newsletter that's related to that about like, you know, I mean, it's a niche topic, but it's, it's, to me, it's fascinating, you know, about noticing the world around you. And so, yeah, those, those are like, like probably, I mean, I subscribe to dozens and dozens of newsletters, but those I think are, oh, and I'll give you one more by M.G. Siegler. And uh, it's just M.G. Siegler. I, I think if you just search on that S-I-E-G-L-E-R, he is a, uh, a VC, venture capitalist, and he kind of writes his opinion on different things happening in the tech world. Um, here he's talking about uh, like uh, something that Tesla is doing. Um, let's see, uh, about uh, the artist Banksy, uh, how he, he made a painting that self-destructed after it went on auction. Um, the number of words per minute for each episode of Game of Thrones. That's interesting. The, the number of words dropped every season. Wow. Words per minute. Yeah, that's interesting. But anyway, so that's like, uh, th those are all, I think, take a look at them. And if you don't like them, one click and you'll never have to look at it again. Yeah, that's great. And, and they do carry that very personal touch. You know, you feel like yeah. something about it coming straight into your email, you know, it's just something a little bit different about that than scrolling through Twitter, <laughs> seeing the endless, you know, endless opinions. Yeah. And also just Twitter is like this, you know, it's just become this outrage machine. And when I read it, you know, I get angry and, um, I have not cut myself off completely from social media, but I've been reading a book by Jaron Lanier, who uh, has a book out that's, it's called something like 10 reasons to, to quit social media. And he said, you know, one of the main reasons that he doesn't want to be on social media is he realizes that when he is, he becomes an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel that same tendency, you know, you, you become argumentative, you become crabby, you see people that you, you know, saying things that you think are, are stupid and uh, dangerous, and then you become adversarial and it's not really helpful. And, and I, so like for the last couple of months, I've been off of social media a lot. I barely even look at Twitter or Instagram and my reading has gone way up. I've been reading so many more books, like probably five times as many books as before. And also, um, 
I like to practice Japanese with an app. And so my, like my iPhone usage now is practicing Japanese and reading on the Kindle. And it's like, I, I feel a lot better about it than I do after, you know, when I used to just like scroll through Twitter for an hour and a half at night. Yeah, that's probably like satisfying to realize like yeah, I spent four hours on my iPhone today as opposed to, uh, you know, four hours on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Yeah, exactly. That's incredible. What, what are, um, are there any, uh, I'm a huge reader myself, uh, any amazing books you've read recently that you have to recommend to people? Uh, let me see. Um, okay, I've been on this kick with this writer. Uh, let me see what her, her name is. She's a like a mystery writer. And um, so, yeah, I, I've been, uh, let me see what her name is, Sherry LaPena. And she, and so I, I read uh, a book by her called The Couple Next Door. And I'm reading one called The Stranger in the House right now. And there was one other one that I don't have on my Kindle because I, I rented it as a library book. But so I'm on my third one from her. It's, they're, they're really great, tight, well-written mystery novels with great, like, um, they kind of remind me like a combination of, uh, of like Gillian Flynn and Theodore Dreiser or something. She's just really good with her, her characters. And then another one that I really recommend that I loved was called The Futurological Congress by a Polish science fiction writer named Stanislaw Lem, and it was written in 1970, and it's about a guy who um, is, is murdered and then wakes up again in the future. I think it's like 2039, and he, he realizes that the, the world is completely presented to people through different kinds of hallucin, uh, like psychedelic drugs that have very specific uh, uh, effects. And the people take them voluntarily and they're like sprayed into the air uh, uh, in an involuntary way. And it's like, it, it's, it's like just packed. If you like, like books loaded with like, like profoundly weird ideas that make you go, oh my God, then Stanislaw Lamb is a great one. That's awesome. I'll definitely check that one out. And then one other one that I really liked was by uh, Darren Brown, the kind of the, the performer, the mentalist. He wrote a book called Happy, which is like a, a, a serious work of scholarship where he spent a lot of time kind of exploring the way that the Stoics approached uh, how to live and um, kind of other philosophies about uh, how to kind of have a more resilient frame of mind. And um, I thought that he did a really great job with, with that. Another one that sounds, sounds amazing. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Stoic philosophy and, you know, diving into the classics. Cool. Yes, I, awesome. I recommend that. Well, thank you for those recommendations, Mark. You're filled with tons of great information. I feel like I could ask you questions endlessly here. <laughs> well, anytime. It was so much fun chatting with you, Patrick. Absolutely. I've had a great time as well. Is there, uh, before we wrap up here, is there, first off, where can people find you online? 
And then do you have any sort of asks or requests or, or final words of advice for the audience? Let's see, I think the, the, the easiest place to kind of like uh, see what I'm, I've been looking into lately is to go to boingboing.net. And you'll see my post where I post every day about um, articles I'm reading, things that are catching my interest, uh, uh, shows that I like, that kind of stuff. So, and then you could probably just, uh, you know, find my other, and then I, I guess, well, the other one would be cool-tools.org. And you can see the tool review site I do, and that will like lead you to the Recommendo newsletter and, and book brief. Fantastic. And any last words or, or, or words of advice or anything for the, for the listeners out there? Um, I, I would say that if you like me have been like kind of addicted to like social media as a way to like give yourself little squirts of dopamine, try uh, reading books instead, like move towards slow media and away from fast media and, and see what happens as an experiment. I love that. Thank you for saying that. I think that's phenomenal advice. I really do. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, I'll, I look forward to seeing what, what you produce in the future. I, uh, again, I'm a huge fan of your work. So, so please keep, keep cranking it out. Everyone needs more of it. And uh, thank you for, for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Patrick. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.